Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi, I'm Jo Evans and welcome to Cross Section. We've had quite a run this series of special guests and special focus episodes. So this week we're going back to basics and it's just me, Peter, Alicia and Danny all together again to look at the news and current events and talk about what difference being a Christian makes as we process it all. Lovely to be back together with you all. It's been here. Party. <laughs> Love the enthusiasm. Now, starting off with some news that came out yesterday evening, the great Tina Turner has died at the age of 83. So I thought we could just share maybe some of our favorite songs or ways that she's made an impact on us. Peter, you seem to the obvious place to start. What's your <laughs> What's your favorite Tina Turner song? It's harsh. That's harsh. I went for We Don't Need Another Hero. That was my song. That seems to be a popular song for the church at this moment. Let's just focus on Jesus. Excellent, excellent pivoting from cultural current events to <laughs> implications for the Christian faith. We love to see it here on Cross Section. Alicia, I believe you are more of a genuine Tina Turner fan. A little bit. I, I don't want to put myself out there just in case we've got listeners that would want to recite stuff. But my favourite song is Proud Mary, which actually isn't her song. It's a cover mm. of John Fogerty, who originally wrote it in 1968. It has a very hillbilly vibe. Then if you know Tina Turner, she kind of jazzed it up a little bit. So, yeah, that's my favorite song. Good for a wedding. Now, I am just a little bit younger than some of the other members of this panel. <laughs> um, but my my first real memory of Tina Turner is, did any of you ever play Sing Star? No. No. Yeah. Is, <laughs> was that yes from Donnie? It was a yes. Excellent. So it's basically a karaoke game for PlayStation 2. Me and my family used to love it. And I belted out many a time, What's Love Got To Do With It by Tina Turner. By many a time, probably two or three, <laughs> but definitely did it. Um, go, go, now's your cue. <laughs> yeah, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> we won't be having any, I think that would be an incredibly disrespectful way to honor the passing of Tina Turner. Okay, on with today's news stories. We're slightly playing catch up with this one, but the 15th to the 17th of May saw the National Conservatism Conference, often referred to as the NatCon Conference, which is separate from the Conservative Party, although several Conservative MPs did speak at it. Danny, why, why might this be of interest to us and maybe our listeners? Well, I've heard bumblings about this conference for several months. Various people I follow on Twitter who were speaking at it, but I didn't really know much about it. So it's, it's a conference, as you say, it took place in London. It's run by the Edmund Burke Foundation, which is a Washington-based think tank. In fact, this conference has taken place in a number of different countries over the last, I think, eight years. And this was the first time it had been in the UK. It's interesting because it saw a flavour of conservative politics mm -hmm. that is probably more at home in the United States that was more explicit about some of the faith and the values that were within it. But it was also, 
important and relevant because quite a few high-profile Conservative Party figures did speak at it. You had Michael Gove giving one of the keynote addresses. Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, spoke, as did other figures who may be slightly lesser known, such as Danny Kruger and Miriam Cates. And therefore, that made it a very significant conversation within Conservative Party circles about whether this was part of the future direction of the party, were these people pitching for where the party should go next? And that's sparked all sorts of conversations and including some pushback from some of their fellow MPs. And you mentioned Danny Kruger there, who it's always hard to know what is what is something that all Christians know about and what are things that just us in our little policy Christian organisational bubble is just part of the air we breathe. But Danny Kruger is a name that's perhaps more well-known to us. He's he's someone who would call himself a Christian. And people might have seen a clip going around about Danny Kruger's comments on marriage, which I think almost as interesting as what he actually said is the backlash he's received from people like Matt Hancock. Peter, I know that you've spent some time thinking about this. What what did you make of, of that whole situation? Well, there's a couple of points that are definitely interesting. I mean, national conservatism does have an explicitly religious foundation, which is interesting. And there were a number of Christian MPs like Danny. And then Danny said something expressly on marriage. It was two sentences because I got asked to do media on this. And I was like, what did he say? So you go back to his page, you find he says, marriage between a man and a woman is good for the children and good for the parents and is a solid basis for finding, for finding a society. Like That's not controversial. So in terms of where the evidence is on that. So the evidence is overwhelmingly across all the social sciences that that is better for the man involved in the marriage, it's better for the woman involved in the marriage, it's better for kids on a whole range of measures. Now, for all sorts of reasons, not everybody finds themselves in those situations. That doesn't, that's not saying that's bad, but evidentially across the board, Danny said something that is uncontroversial, but it was so interesting, the pushback, because we're like, are we taking the evidence seriously? Which is overwhelmingly. You live longer, happier, healthier, more affluent lives across the board for everybody. And therefore, is that something we say is a good thing to aspire towards, recognizing it doesn't happen for everybody. And that's where it was really interesting. I think the level of pushback around that statement that is just evidentially true. Mm. So I think I think maybe the most controversial part of what he said is he said the normative family, which you could read different things into. So does he mean having two parents or does that mean explicitly having a mum and a dad rather than two mums two dads which is a more controversial statement in our current climate I also think another really interesting thing he said was the next sentence which was that marriage is not about you I thought that was really interesting that he was talking about marriage as an act of service it's a it's a commitment to the person you're marrying and society around you, that that marriage is about, it's it's a choice rather than, you know, something we do purely out of feeling, which I, that I thought that was interesting. And I'm surprised there's not been more talk about that because that's so different to how at a large society approaches marriage today. Marriage, you know, if we look at divorce statistics, um, which this year, I know you've, you spotted something in Portugal, was it? This week about divorce statistics, what was the number? Well, it was BBC Sounds and it was challenging a stat that had gone out on Twitter that 94% of marriages in Portugal end in divorce. 
Hmm. And there was a, a whole conversation of whether there's accuracy in that. Is that validated and stuff like that? Yeah. Okay. Okay. That, but there is definitely more of a sense now that, that people enter into marriage until it stops working, despite the vows that they might say in the ceremony. And I guess Danny Kruger was pushing us to go back to, you no, know, marriage is making promises. The promises are the basis of that marriage, not our feelings. Well, Danny, it was, yeah, he certainly said marriage is not all about you. Just that uh, oil is probably important because it's partly about us, but all about you. And I'll segue seamlessly back to Tina Turner, that love is a second-hand emotion, she's saying. I think in part we were saying that marriage is a commitment beyond that. There's really good evidence about sliding versus deciding. So people who make a conscious decision are more likely to stay in a relationship. So actually, a joint like phone contract or gym membership is a stronger indication that a, a relationship will stay together than having a baby. Because you don't, you don't actively write down a commitment to having a baby. It happens, the sliding versus deciding. So people who make conscious decisions do better. And there is a, a significant statistical difference between cohabiting and between marriage. And actually, currently, marriages that start now are actually more likely to end in death, as in survive through to death, than they were divorce rates. But they've now dropped. Less people are getting married, but those marriages are more likely to go to last through because people have consciously decided to get married. There's not the same social pressure. But it is the evidence why I think Danny was pushing around. He was being provocative. But as a Christian, I'm going, well, yeah, we actually believe marriage between a man and a woman is something God gave us. That's the reason why it works better for everybody. It doesn't mean that you stay in a marriage that's not working it, that there's some issues around that. But fundamentally, it's a core idea. But it's so interesting, everybody wants to pick the little negative bit. And all the media was like, what about, what about, what about, what about? And you're like, yeah, but what about the core? Why are we so scared about talking about this as a positive benefit to society as a whole? Mm. I mean, Sorry. I think picking up on Joe's point of, of the backlash, it is around those initial two words before he moved in about, normative family i think that's the pushback that left-wing media have pushed back on what about the single parent what about you know the reasons for lone parenting and stuff like that and i when i heard it it did take me back to my own experience and how every time within the church or within media the conversation around family is naturally an emotive one there mm -hmm. is many imperfect families upbringing mine is one of those my mum an incredible woman raised me single parent household relationship with my father estranged since I was four years old so the language of normative family is triggering but it also goes to the core of what is failing in our society more generally I think it's John Paul II that says you know where the family goes there goes the nation and there goes the world that we live in so there is a, a, a truth that family is the cornerstone of society and family and within politics it's one of those dividing lines between conservatism and within the Labour Party of how do you address the family breakdown and all the ways it manifests in different public policy issues without condemning the scenario and situations that people find themselves in so I agree with everything that kind of Peter shared in terms of the relaying of what Danny Kruger was talking about. But I think as the church and society, we do need to go to the heart of family and to strengthen that and equip it and give the biblical narrative of what's good about it and how even in a society that's failed and failing, how we can recreate that in a redemptive way that brings people, sets the lowly in families as, as the command is in scripture. So 
I think it, I think it also shows, and this whole debate has shown some of the paucity of our political culture. Yeah. That the can you talk about something being the ideal, mm-hmm. while also accepting that many people do an excellent job in a number of different yeah. circumstances. So you can say actually a certain type of family is what we should strive for, but that isn't condemning all yeah. other types of family. But, but that kind of conversation in politics at the moment feels like so hard to have because as soon as you say that something is perhaps the ideal or the mm-hmm. best scenario you are viewed as saying well that means you hate or you're rejecting everything else mm-hmm. and that absolutely isn't what is being said and that's I think what you you caught in some of Matt Hancock's response to Danny Kruger just an inability or an unwillingness to engage with that that nuance. Mm. No I think as we come in like in one sense, I don't care what Danny Kruger and Matt Hancock think, and I think we want to stress that. We're talking about the church's view and family because it intersects at this moment. So it's not that I'm going, oh, those guys have had a great idea, let's get behind it. They've had a great idea that God gave us first, but he also reimagined families and pushed us. So he's like, it's water, it's thicker than blood in the New Testament. It's the it's the baptism that brings us into an extended family. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a family well beyond. So we are adopted as joined heirs into, into God's family. And that's a wonderful, incredible thing. And then we as the church reflect that extended family. There's no doubt we need to own that we were, as a church, way too obsessed with the nuclear family that isn't in the Bible anywhere. Marriage is a great thing, and then the extended family is a great thing, and that leads out from there. And then we reimagine that extended family beyond the traditional boundaries, where we bring one another into our houses and our extended families in a much more fluid sense, in a wonderful way. So that's what we're excited about. These guys have got a tiny glimpse in that, so we're interested. Let's have the conversation, but let's not think that's the ideal. We're interested in something much richer, which is what we're we're baptized into and brought into. Ah, Peter, you totally stole my point. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) But actually, it's really interesting thinking that that Jesus and the church have this totally radical solution to, you know, broken families or, yeah, families that aren't in an ideal situation in that you have this this new and and messy in the best way church family that gathers around and actually what would it what would it look like we're going to be thinking a bit about you know how I think we're going to be thinking about for the next year 18 months leading up to the next general election how do we think about how our Christian faith should influence policy or our views on policy and yeah what would it look like for for that kind of model to be played out in policy That's something we can chew over in the coming months. Another topic that was brought up many times at the NatCon conference and has been in the headlines once again since is around immigration and refugees. This week, the illegal migration bill was back in the House of Lords and today stats came out from the Office of National Statistics, which said that new figures show UK net migration reached 606,000 in 2022. It also found that's a that's a record figure for a full year, although slightly less than predicted. And around 114,000 people came from Ukraine and about 52,000 from Hong Kong. Separate data shows that the backlog of asylum seekers waiting for a decision has risen to just over 170,000. Alicia, can you give us a bit more of an overview of where legislation is at? 
Well, coincidentally, yesterday was day one of five of the House of Lords reviewing the Illegal Migration Bill, which is a government piece of legislation to tackle irregular routes into the United Kingdom. And again, a piece of legislation that has sparked diverse opinion, outrage, a way of tackling the small boats crisis, but also other issues in terms of how people humanitarian aid and dealing with kind of resettlement as well as citizenship and there's clauses in there specific to the detention of those entering the UK you might have seen headlines talking about ships kind of at sea and other detention facilities disused army facilities so yes it was in the Lord yesterday day one for further conversation and deliberation about four hours talking about one or two clauses and it resumes on Monday, the 5th of June for further discussion, where it's kind of line by line scrutiny and amendment. So we're kind of in the early stages in the House of Lords. And the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, has been very outspoken on this topic. There was a piece in the Times on the 20, 23rd of May, so Tuesday, from Justin Welby outlining some of his concerns. Danny, how much... How much of an impact do you think Justin Welby's voice can have? Well, in some ways, he's putting where his money, where his mouth is, in that he is putting amendments down to seek to change this bill in the House of Lords. He sits in the House of Lords, and maybe for another debate, we can talk about bishops in the House of Lords. Mm -hmm. But he does have that opportunity, and he is seeking to put forward proposals that he where he would want to see this this proposed law amended they have the bishops in the house of lords have sought to set out alternative approaches and he he wrote in his piece in the times that there is no route for the iranian christian under threat mm -hmm. of death for their faith the nigerian atheist under threat for blasphemy or someone fleeing war or in Sudan. And this is around the need for further safe routes. So not saying that uh, we should allow everyone in, but that there should be routes for people who are fleeing persecution and are able to access the asylum system in a safe way. The, the challenge for him and for other leaders, particularly in the, in the Church of England, is that they are seen as wading into a very party political debate. Mm. This, this is very partisan in that the overwhelming majority of Conservative MPs and Lords will support this legislation and the overwhelming majority of other parties will oppose it. And therefore, for the Church of England, for their representatives to be engaging very specifically on one side of the legislation, whatever merits their arguments have, they are seen as taking party political stances. And therefore, that is a challenge because you then have people who might support the Conservatives thinking, why on earth are the Church of England getting involved in this? Why are they speaking out on this issue? And possibly they are losing an opportunity to influence the conversation and the opinions around this if their views are seen as too partisan. I don't think that means they shouldn't engage, but I think it means that there are significant risks to their engagement, that people won't necessarily listen to them next time they speak out. I, I think we, we've talked about Justin Welby quite a few times on Cross Section because he has these amazing platforms where he speaks out. And sometimes we've talked about him in frustration where we feel like, yeah, he's he's not held to 
the historical faith the way that we would want him to. But I think he's, I think he does a really excellent job in this article where he both, you're totally right about it being such a polarised issue, Danny. I think he does such a good job of grounding his view in the teachings of Jesus. That's, that is primarily why he is arguing what he's arguing for. I also think he does a really excellent job. When I got to that, that bit in the article where he talks about the persecuted Iranian Christian and then the next line he talks about the Nigerian atheist, I think that's such a good example of as Christians, we, we don't want to only be looking out for Christians in our advocacy, particularly around things like religious freedom. I, I think, yeah, it almost frustrates me how good a job he does because I'm like, oh, why can't you be this good all the time? Yes, that is the one thing. I'm not worried about him being partisan. I And I, he should be speaking this. He's right. Bishops do have a duty. But there are a number of other areas where they've had a duty and they've lapsed in that duty. So yeah. it is wonderful to see him. So we need to be right, encourage him when he's doing well. And they should be speaking on this. And everybody will have different views. But he's putting a good, clear Christian view on this. But there are a number of other issues where they've ducked out. And that is a shame. Mm. I, I think, we, again, we're going we're gonna to keep coming back to this, but I think he does an excellent job of explaining or exemplifying how our faith should directly influence what policy we believe in. But let's, let's go on to other policy. Alicia, can you, can you talk us through, there's been a lot of talk around students in the new visa policy. Can you just talk us through that a little bit? Gladly. So it's been a busy week in terms of conversations around immigration and migration to the UK. In part, it's through the bill. But I think, as you mentioned, it's to do with today's announcement about net migration to the UK, which is a core policy area for the current prime minister and the current government in trying to reduce that. So one strategy that they have in mind and that they've announced is that they're changing student visa route to the UK. So essentially reading from their press bulletin is kind of looking to reduce students that have come to the UK to study at university to reduce the opportunity for them to bring dependents, i.e. other family members, to the UK. And they're hoping that that will impact by reducing by over 100,000. So that's another route, another access into the UK. So again, the conversation of immigration isn't just about asylum. And I think the Office of National Statistics raised that 8% of asylum claims contributes to, to migration in the UK. There are other issues and student visas is one. Another area is employment and work. Family reunion is another area. So addressing the issue of net migration is not going to be an easy one because so many industries and services and public life is rooted around kind of families and individuals living in the UK. So, so but this for me is another example of the government just making a short-term headline grab. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. if I did the maths on this, this is about net migration figures. So it's the number who arrive minus the number who leave. Students are usually here on short-term things. This new approach is particularly relating, I think, to postgraduate non-research yeah. programs. So master's degree, taught masters, year-long courses often. So people will come for a year and then go. So they might appear in the arrivals, but they'll also appear in the exits. And unless there's a huge increase, mm. it's not going to make any difference. 
And if people do then move into work from these visas, they will have to change visa category mm-hmm. and have a work visa. So it would still show up in the net migration. So actually, this announcement will make nothing or absolutely negligible difference to the mm-hmm. numbers. But it's given the government one or two days of headlines yeah. to suggest that they're doing something about the issue. So it just frustrates me immensely. I also think it has really strange spin-off issues around the way that the government's valuing education because Sir Bradman's talked about how she only wants she only wants people that what's the term she used? Those that are studying high quality courses such as engineering or life sciences to be able to have dependents. But I just think that's really strange because what is she then saying about the arts or, or other types of qualifications? And, and when you compare that to great areas of need in our society and economy, like in agriculture, where we really need fruit and vegetable pickers, you know, that's not those aren't high quality degrees, but that's a real area of need. And it just feels like a really strange way of, of valuing things against each other. Peter, we asked on Twitter today about this question of applying our faith to our views on policy. And we asked whether people felt there was any areas of policy where our faith, where faith doesn't have a place, where our opinions shouldn't be influenced by faith. And we did have one person say particularly that they thought that it it shouldn't come into the equation around border control and what was the other one? Someone else read it as well, didn't they? Defense. Defense, border control and defense. What 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 do you say to that? How do we think that through? Politely, that's nonsense. I mean, it has to apply to everything. It does. I mean, it's just our faith, there's no way it can't. Defence is a really obvious one. I mean, where do we get most of our understanding of that from? St. Augustine is just war theory. He tells us when you can go to war, and this still determines that to this day, and he tells us about our actions in war. That whole theory comes from Christians thinking about when you apply your defence criteria, and that right through to the Iraq war and more recent invasions, there's been those criteria come into play every day. Christians have driven all of that. So I just, you know, the quartet of the vulnerable is a known that the Old Testament prophets spoke most about the widows and the orphans and the migrants or the resident aliens. There's lots of different ways you can translate that, but no matter what you think, it comes down to how we look at our borders. So, yeah, politely, I would say, of course it affects everything. This is the game-changing moment of our lives. I'll stop there because I'll probably go on and say something even worse. No, I just think it's it's so important. So, But it's great. And we got to wrestle with it. This is the life-changing moment of our lives. Jesus changed absolutely everything. This affects our entire worldview, our world vision, and entire social imaginary way of understanding the world. This is game-changing. Mm, I, I mean, it, cut, it cuts the heart of what we're really about at Cross Section, what we're about in the advocacy team at large, of applying our faith to every area of public life, to the way we live. But yeah, I think it is really challenging. I think it requires a great deal of honesty with ourselves and with God to bring our opinions that we've formed about every area of life, every policy area, and and say to God, you know, does that, or, or ask the question, does this reflect God's heart? Yes, I think it's very difficult. I say it every week. Please follow us on social media to keep track of everything that we are up to throughout the week. You can follow us on Twitter at EAUK News, on Instagram, Evangelical Alliance, 
and you can get in touch via email. We love reading your emails at cross.section at eauk.org. Let us know what you think. What area of policy does it feel difficult to connect your faith? Or how do you go about doing that? We'd love for you to let us know. Next, we're going to hear just very briefly about the public leadership course that we run here at the Evangelical Alliance. I'm with Bethany McLeod, Public Leadership UK and Scotland lead. Bethany, what is the vision behind public leadership? Hi, Joe. So as you know very well, the Evangelical Alliance is passionate about seeing kingdom change across all areas of society. We do that through our advocacy work, through our church and mission work, but we also do this in public leadership. So we believe that God has strategically placed public leaders in every sector of society and industry because he's at work and cares about every level of our lives. So for young Christian leaders in today's world, they are overwhelmed by challenges and pressures they face in society, whether that's financial or navigating social media and feeling lonely or facing discrimination and just thinking about how do I best follow Jesus where I've been placed um, are all really difficult questions that public leaders are wrestling with. And that's what we want to address with our public leader programme, which we're launching this September. It sounds amazing. Who is the public leader programme for? So we accept applications from people in their 20s and 30s who are already displaying some form of emerging leadership within their workplace. We want to hear about your vision for your public leadership. And the 10-month journey is for equipping and encouraging young professionals and emerging leaders to intentionally and strategically take the lead. So if that's something that sounds appealing to you, we want to hear from you. We'll be running programmes in Scotland, Northern Ireland and England this September. And what about Wales? Yes. So if you were listening to the Cross-Section podcast a couple of weeks ago, you'll have already heard from our public policy officer in Wales, Nathan, that we're running an event in Cardiff in the Senate at the end of June. Um, so if you want to get involved in that, please do get in touch with the public leadership team. And we'll have a few events coming up in Wales over the next year while we build up to launching the public leader programme there next year. But if you are in Wales and you're excited about the idea of public leadership and want to apply for the programme this year, we are welcoming applications for our England programme, which will be taking place in the north of England this year to make it slightly more accessible. So please do get in touch. Don't be held back by that. Great. Thanks so much, Bethany. I'm going to put the public leadership information on the cross-section webpage this week. Bye. Bye. Now, we started today's podcast with the death of one legend, and we will end this podcast with another. On Monday, the 22nd of May, the brilliant father, grandfather, husband, teacher, preacher, author, Tim Keller, died at the age of 72. Some of his last reported words by his family were, I'm thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. Tim Keller now is home with Jesus. And I thought we could just take a few minutes to reflect on what we have learned from him, perhaps both personally, but also the lessons that he leaves behind for Christians engaging in the world around us as he did that so well. I think it's a funny one with Tim Keller, where he obviously was someone that wasn't interested in fame or legacy, and yet he has received a whole bucket load of it on his death. But Danny, do you want to kick us off with this one? 
Yeah, I, 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 we definitely was talking about public leadership. I found Tim Keller has been an incredible example of public leadership as someone who spent most of their life as a relatively unnoticed church leader now within some circle redeemer in manhattan was well known but it wasn't really until he started writing books i think it was 2008 he published reason for god and since then written at least i think a book a year he's been prolific in this latter stage of his career and that's been the point where he's reached a far wider audience but for most of his life he was a pastor of a church i have really valued how he communicates depth simply and so throughout many of his books, I'm thinking Generous Justice was probably one of the ones that stood out most. Really profound and deep biblical truths, but communicating them with ease. And I think that's what I've really valued and I really admire in that he is incredibly well read. If you see who he cites and who he refers to, there's so much work that's gone in behind that. But actually, when he communicates, he is seeking to engage the widest possible audience. And that that comes through whether it's Christians he's seeking to reach or whether he's seeking to communicate the Christian message who those to those who aren't Christians. And I, I think that that clarity of communication is is what I've really picked up from him. I'd go with, I mean, the winsome was this word that was used of him. And there was a bit of pushback and you know, cultures change and can you be? And I think he just consistently showed this way of engaging. Danny was, you know, hinting at it too. He was incredibly wise, but I think that was, he gave himself the time, as Danny said, but also, I mean, he read really widely on subjects. So when he came into a conversation, he thought about it and he articulated his position really well. And there was this deep humility. You just keep reading these stories about people who emailed him and he replied, people who disagreed with him and then maybe engaged and, and he sort of very quietly and in an unassuming way came around and, and, and sort of befriended them and engaged with them and he had time for so many people and so with all that's going on in these moments you just looked at someone like that and his family and the way he articulated all of that and the way he faced death and engaged in that and did it again in such a winsome way how many lives were changed you know the legend word is overused but you do look at someone like that and say that, that really was a legend of the faith and and thank you so much to him personally and for so many people whose lives have been impacted because the way he publicly navigated faith and made modeled something for other people that they went, oh, there's a way to do this. So thank you, Tim. Alicia? Yeah, I think his his bravery to engage in the culture is something that I definitely admire. I think it was either a year after the pandemic or it might have been months, time elapses, but his four essays on justice really challenged me and challenged how much does my faith and biblical principles and narratives actually shape some of my political outlooks. He did an, an article on biblical justice. He did one on social justice. He did one on racism at the time when the kind of the Black Lives Matter movement was at its peak, both in the US and the UK. And he challenged, or and I certainly felt challenged, Christians to be like, we need to engage in these issues from a different perspective, and it needs to come primarily through through scripture. So for me, that, that's one of my main learnings of how much of my opinions, positions, point of view really shaped by the full canon of scripture on how much of it is my own personal preferences. So, yeah. The past few months, my husband and I just happened to have been reading 
The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller, which is, it's a brilliant book, which just again and again points you to Jesus. If you want to know what it looks like to be a good wife, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it looks like to be a good husband, look at Jesus. And I think that speaks to so much of Tim Keller's ministry as I've been on the Christian Twitter world this year, video after video of Tim Keller speaking about Jesus and his love for him. And one of my favorites that's come up this week is he's talking about how the Bible is not about you. And he goes through all these different characters and figures in the Bible and says, Jesus is the true and better Adam, Abel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rock of Moses, Job, David, Esther, Jonah, the temple, prophet, priest, king, lamb, sacrifice, light and bread. So what a wonderful encouragement as we go out into our weekends and the weeks ahead to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. To our listeners, I know that you like to know what's going on in the world of cross-section. So let me just prepare you. There won't be an episode next week. We're having a little break for half term. Then then we'll be back for four more episodes to see us through into summer. And Peter will be having the reins next time we're back. But for now, goodbye. And we will see you next time on Cross-Section. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross-Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.